Our confessional lesson for this evening is found in the Belgic Confession, which we have been working through. Tonight we will be reading Article 25 on the fulfillment of the law. We believe that the ceremonies and symbols of the law have ended with the coming of Christ and that all foreshadowings have come to an end so that the use of them ought to be abolished among Christians. Yet the truth and substance of these things remain for us in Jesus Christ in whom they have been fulfilled. Nevertheless, we continue to use the witnesses drawn from the law and the prophets to confirm us in the gospel and to regulate our lives with full integrity for the glory of God according to his will. The content of this article is curious, even if its placement is not. Let me explain. As you know, in the Reformed tradition, the sanctification of the sinner and the law are closely linked and therefore are usually discussed together. Sanctification is this process of inner renewal effected by the Holy Spirit, whereby we become more and more conformed to the image of God's Son, Jesus Christ. He lived a life of perfect obedience to his Father's will, which is embodied in the law. Therefore, to the extent to which we are conformed to his image, to that same extent do we find in our hearts a desire to obey God's law. The psalmist's words resonate in us. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Your law is within my heart, Psalm 40, verse 8. And even, oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day, Psalm 119, verse 97. In this regard, Calvin and the Reformer spoke of the third use of the law, also known as the teaching use or the use for the regenerate. Calvin, in fact, regarded it as the primary use. The the law convicts us of sin, which is its first use. The law serves as a foundation for civil order which is its second use. But above all, it serves as a rule for life, a rule, of, uh, a rule for life for the believer. The law is a rule to which they increasingly desire to conform their lives thanks to the Holy Spirit who lives within them. In fact, the Holy Spirit inscribes God's law in the hearts of, of those who believe in Christ. In him, the prophecy found in Jeremiah 31, 33 is fulfilled. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. The Holy Spirit reforms and reorients our desires so that we find increasing delight in obeying God's commands. And all this belongs to a discussion of sanctification and the law, but you'll notice that it doesn't form the central theme of Article 25. Instead, the Belgic Confession wants to impress on us that the ceremonies and the symbols of the law have all ended with the coming of Christ. That is to say, the sacrifices 
the washing, the burning of incense, the utensils used in temple service, and anything else you can mention in connection with the ceremonial law, all these have been abrogated and superseded by Christ. In this sense, Christ is the end of the law. For for this reason, all these things no longer have binding force on the Christian. For with the coming of Christ, the ceremonial law has fulfilled its function. In other words, in various ways, the rituals and the objects used in them pointed to Christ, who fulfilled their inner meaning. Christ has fulfilled all the figures of the law, With the coming of Christ, the shadows ceased, so that in Christ we now have the truth in all its fullness. Christ is the end of the law. We shouldn't underestimate the significance of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf in abolishing the ceremonial law. Indeed, most of the epistle to the Hebrews is dedicated to this theme, drawing from Hebrews, the Swiss reformer Ulrich Zwingli, contemporary of Martin Luther, wrote this. Under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged in their freedom from the yoke of ceremonial law to which the Jewish assembly was subjected and in greater access to the throne of grace and in fuller communication of the free spirit of God than believers under the law did ordinarily partake of. But we may wonder why the Belgic Confession and the Reformed Confessions generally found it necessary to give attention to this subject in their context since it doesn't seem to be so urgent in our own. We may wonder what were the practical implications for them since they don't seem obvious to us. The reformers found it necessary to relate Jewish ceremonial law from which Christ sets us free to the ecclesiastical ordinances imposed on people by the Roman church. For Jewish ceremonial law, they perceived, reappeared under the guise of the ecclesiastical laws of the church of Rome. And Christ frees us from those no less than he does from Jewish ceremonial law. Again, Zwingli wrote, all the papal laws not grounded in God's word, the prohibition of foods, the commandments of purification, the oaths, the auricular confession, abstinences, monetary compensations, indulgences, from all these placed upon us as if we would through them become good and holy, we have been freed. The Roman Church, in the eyes of the Reformers, denied the doctrine of Christian freedom, to which the gospel of God's free grace in Christ calls all believers. When it opposes these laws, thereby binding the conscience of believers. Nor can it appeal to God's word to support these laws. This is what we see in Zwingli's statement. In fact, there are express warnings in the New Testament against them. For example, the Apostle Paul fears that he has wasted his efforts on the Galatians when he hears that they are turning away from the gospel of God's grace to the weak and 
beggarly elements of this world reflected in their observance of days and months and seasons and years, Galatians 4.10. Likewise, Paul asked incredulously why the believers in Colossae are subjecting themselves to ceremonial regulations. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. The author to the epistle of the epistle to the Hebrews reminds the believers that it is good that the heart be established by grace, not by foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. Hebrews thirteen nine. Ordinances that have no support in God's word pervert Christian freedom, making the faithful slaves to mere men when they are imposed by church authorities. The conscience is free only when God is Lord of the conscience. I think here we can especially appreciate the link between Article 25 and the foregoing, for there too the the question of conscience arises. If the faithful somehow are led to believe that they are under obligation through their good works to add their own merits to the all-sufficient merit of Jesus Christ in his suffering and death, the confession tells us the conscience would never rest. It is clear, however, that the Belgic does not for this reason despise the ceremonial law. Following Calvin's Gallican confession, it can declare that although the figures of the law come to an end with the coming of Christ, and although the ceremonies are no longer in use, yet their truth and substance remains in the person of him in whom they are fulfilled. In fact, it goes even further and says that in them there are two uses for the believer. First, we can continue to use the witnesses of the law and the prophets to confirm us in the gospel. Indeed, so long as we see them as pointing to Christ, we cannot go astray when we look to them for insight and instruction. The second use for which we continue to look to the witnesses from the law and the prophets is to regulate our lives with full integrity for the glory of God according to his will. The article concludes rather abruptly, but suggestively. The word regulate ultimately derives from the Latin word regula, which means rule. We made the point that Calvin and the reformers privileged the third use of the law, according to which the law serves as a rule for Christian life. So it's not unlikely that the Belgic Confession here is gesturing towards the third use of the law. Although intriguingly, it's rather cryptic, and for whatever reason, it doesn't develop the reform teaching on it any further here. The intention of the article, even if it doesn't unfold in the way we expect, is clear. Christ is the end of the law. The ceremonial law, whether of the Old Testament or the Church of Rome, or any church, then and now, is abolished. But in Christ, we also have been set free for new obedience. 
for which we continue to look to the law, the moral law, as our guide for the glory of God. Let's then continue in our worship. Um, Our hymn is number 513. Jesus, I my cross have taken. Let's stand to sing number 513. Our uh, scripture passage for this evening is found in the gospel according to Matthew chapter 16, beginning at the 21st verse. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. You know, what goes on in each one of us internally has been compared to what happens at an executive meeting in a corporate boardroom. Imagine for a moment such a room. There's a long table around which those expensive leather chairs are arranged, and seated in them are, are the members of the executive team. They debate and even argue with each other about the decisions that have to be made to maximize the return on investment of the company's shareholders. Each one of these members on this executive team represent a part of the self. There's a work self, there's a relationship self, there's a play or recreation self, there's a financial self, and there's a fill-in-the-blank self. Each of these clamors for attention, just as no two members on this executive team share the same view, so also as no two parts in the self share the same view. Feeling neglected, one part of the self will resent that another part is given preferential treatment. As a result, we experience inner conflict. We are divided within ourselves. We struggle to integrate the various parts of the self into a harmonious whole, but none of us ever succeeds entirely. Success is measured by how well the problem of conflicting interests is solved, how the most balanced compromise is reached. This applies both to the boardroom and to the individual self. 
Well, I'm here to tell you that this is not how success is measured in the life of the disciple of Jesus Christ. Success rather consists, first of all, firing all the members on the executive team and then ceding executive control to Jesus Christ alone, to whom one must submit as Lord. Success consists in entrusting oneself and one's concerns entirely to him, to leave it to him to order, to direct, and to provide. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you, Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount earlier in the Gospel according to Matthew. One recalls here the title of one of Soren Kierkegaard's books, Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. That's how you find this integrated self. And this is how it should be for the disciple of Jesus. It's how it is meant to be, but it isn't always how it is. And of this we find an outstanding example in the person of Peter in our scripture passage for this evening. Remember that Peter distinguished himself among the disciples earlier in chapter 16 when Jesus posed the question to them, who do you say that I am? Peter stepped forward and confidently volunteered the answer, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter achieved a proper recognition of Jesus. Peter made a confession of faith that corresponds to who Jesus was and is. And Jesus joyfully acknowledged this. He gave to Peter a new name. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. But in the verses before us this evening, Jesus confides to his disciples what lies ahead of him. He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This must happen. Jesus uses a word here that connotes a sense of divine necessity. One commentator explains that it signals that the will of God is making this happen. This must is inherent in God's promise, in God's plan of redemption. We find the same use of this word must in the phrase, the scriptures must be fulfilled. But this is unacceptable to Peter. He says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. In giving to Peter the name Rock, we should see that Jesus at the same time elevated him. On him he conferred the keys of the kingdom of heaven. One wonders now, has this gone to his head? He feels apparently that it's appropriate at this critical moment in Jesus' ministry to exercise this new authority that Jesus invested in him to lodge a protest vote. If I may speak on behalf of the executive team, we don't think that what you're proposing here is in the best interest of the organization. 
Peter brings to mind also uh, Winston Churchill, who, resisting India's independence, is reported to have said, I did not become prime minister in order to preside over the dissolution of the British Empire. Consider the language in these verses. It's very suggestive. Peter took him aside. Hardly an action expected of a subordinate vis-a-vis his superior. He then began to rebuke him. The word is better translated as prohibited since it elsewhere is rendered as order or command. So we pause and we ask, wait, who is the Lord here and who is the disciple? But Peter can't bear the thought that harm should come to Jesus. And this is missed in the translation, arguably. The original can also be rendered, may God have mercy on you, implying, may God have mercy on you by sparing you from what you are proposing. Granted, Jesus does mention that he will be raised on the third day, but what does that mean to Peter and the rest of the disciples at this point? Even after the resurrection, as you know, they weren't able to connect the dots. Jesus' response to Peter is sharp and even shocking. Get behind me, Satan. We wonder how it is that Jesus can call Peter Satan. Did Satan somehow enter into Peter as he did Judas Iscariot at the Last Supper before the one doomed to perdition went out to betray Jesus? This isn't what is happening here. In objecting to Jesus' announcement about the suffering that awaits him in Jerusalem, Peter sounds like Satan. That is, he's acting the part of Satan. Consider the second temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, where the devil took him to the pinnacle of the temple. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Matthew 4, 6. Message is clear. God will prevent you from all harm. This is is what Peter's temptation is, right? Peter's placed himself in the wrong camp. He finds himself as a Satan, a word which means adversary. And at this moment, Peter is Jesus' adversary, that is to say, one who stands opposed to him, not as one who stands behind him, as is a proper place for a disciple. And that's why he is on offense to Jesus. He stands in his way. Peter is on offense to Jesus. That is, he's a stumbling block. The contrast between Peter the rock and Peter the stone of stumbling should not escape us. But what should, not also, what should also not escape us is that what to Jesus is a stumbling block is radically different than what to us is a stumbling block. To us, a Messiah who suffers, that is the stumbling block. He is a stone of stumbling and the rock of offense, we read in 
1 Peter 2, verse 8, Peter is referring to those who stumble or are scandalized by the message of Jesus Christ, the suffering Messiah. But look, it's to Jesus the very opposite. To him, the one who desires to turn away the Messiah from the suffering that he must undergo, he is the stumbling block. And it occurs to me that between us and Christ, there is this radical difference. To be sure, in Christ we have a God who stands in most intimate solidarity with us. This is the abiding comfort that we derive from the Incarnation. Recall here the verse in Hebrews 4, We do not have a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet was without sin. In the Incarnation, God takes what is common to us and makes it his own. In Christ, God becomes the familiar. But we cannot, for this reason, lose sight of the fact that even in Christ, God remains the other, the unfamiliar. God cannot be assimilated to our interests, our desires, our plans, and our projects. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways, as we read in the prophet Isaiah in the 55th chapters, verses 8 and 9. You are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of man. But how can it be otherwise? We're not mindful of the things of God, at least in our natural selves. But God, in his grace, reveals himself. Did not the Father reveal to Peter the true identity of Jesus earlier? These are the divine things. The Apostle Paul asks, Who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? Implied no one, but then he answers, We have the mind of Christ. Perhaps the misunderstanding between Peter and Jesus here helps explain why Jesus ordered them not to tell anyone that he is the Messiah, Matthew 16, 20. He does not want people to define him by the title Messiah. Rather, he wants them to define the title Messiah by him. As the Messiah, Jesus, and only Jesus, can give content to this title as the disciples slowly and even painfully must learn. The Peter that we met earlier in this chapter is Christ-centered, but here he must learn that to be Christ-centered is also to be cross-centered. Jesus is the Messiah, but he is the Messiah who is crucified and raised from the dead. This has direct implications for those who want to follow him, for those who want to be his disciple. What Jesus says next about the nature of discipleship is consistent with a principle that we find elsewhere in the gospel. The student is not above the teacher, nor the servant above his master. And the exchange between Peter and Jesus serves as an occasion for a lesson on discipleship. Jesus turns and invites the disciples, including Peter and anyone else who is willing, into the privilege of following him. To follow consists in denying oneself, or rather, it is a condition in following. You must 
renounce the claim that you have over your own life. If you belong to Christ, then you no longer are your own Lord. You belong to another Lord. The Apostle Paul alludes to this truth when he tells the believers in Corinth, you are not your own. You were bought at a price, 1 Corinthians 6.19. Of course, the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism reads, What is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer that I am not my own, but belong in body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. A statement of the Lordship of Jesus Christ over the life of the disciple. What does this involve practically? It's that as one who has denied himself to become a follower of Jesus, he can and must release himself from self-concern, from self-preoccupation. He must place himself under the care of his Lord. He must place himself at his service, entirely free from distractions. Now, if we're faithful, We're not faithful to the words of Jesus here if we attempt to blunt the sharp edge of his summons. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously famously said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. At the same time, the summons is not without the comfort to which the Heidelberg Catechism is referring. In denying myself, I'm relieved of the exhausting burden of running my own life. I leave it to Jesus to order, to direct, and to provide, as as we mentioned earlier. I'm freed from the tyranny of self-concern, of self-preoccupation. In this perspective, the cross that Christ calls me to take up is no different than his yoke, which is easy, than his burden, which is light. The Christian life is a a throwaway life. It's the great dare that ventures all on the claim that Jesus is it. Jesus is what I've been looking for. He is the meaning of my life, and therefore losing my life for him is the best, and in the end, really the only thing that I can do with my life. And in following him, I find my deepest need for purpose, a term that we hear frequently today. Purpose is satisfied. To be sure, following Jesus in self-forgetful abandon is hardly the image of a successful life presented to us in the world. Successful are those who have mastered the game of life and have the world's goods to prove it. But Jesus counts these among those who want to save their life, only to lose it in the end. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? The message here is that it's better to hear this warning in this life now, before, before one stands before God on the day of judgment, and realize that it's too late, that there's nothing that we can possibly give to God in exchange for our soul. You know, only last week I heard a very interesting story about one of America's most successful businessmen. He was born in the 1870s and proved to, proved to be a very competent businessman at a relatively young age. He 
became a partner in um, a retail business and soon became full owner of a chain of stores uh, stores, uh, soon after the turn of the century. He was well on on his way to gaining the whole world. But in 1929, the year the stock market crashed, he suffered total financial ruin, crushed by the weight of his anxieties. He even feared that he was losing his grip on his sanity. He checked himself in at a place called the Battle Creek Sanitarium, where he wrote farewell letters to his friends and family, assuming that this is a place where he would die. One night he heard singing in one of the halls at the sanitarium, and he went down to investigate. It was a worship service, and there he heard the gospel, which he rejected as a young man. But there at the service, as he would recount later, he underwent a conversion and submitted himself to the lordship of Jesus Christ. He recovered and at 56 years old returned to the retail business. Only now, as he said of himself, he made it his aim to think clearly, to live generously, and to invest eternally. He gave much of what he made to charitable organizations, especially those that advance the gospel. He died in 1971 at the age of 95. The man's name was James Cash Penny, known to us as J.C. Penny. We can see in J.C. Penny an example of a throwaway life, a life that he lost for Christ's sake only to find it. But what about us? What might life for us look like if we deny ourselves take up our cross and follow Jesus. To be sure, cross-bearing for some will mean what it meant for Jesus. The price of following him will be paid for in blood. Peter and most of the disciples were martyred in Jesus' name. And even today, people face martyrdom. Some of you may be aware of the persecution that is happening in Manipur, a state in northeast India. The news from there is shocking and even heartbreaking. It's reported that more than 45,000 people have been displaced, 250 churches have been destroyed, and 150 people have lost their lives. And we hear that there's no concern from the Manipur government for the Christians. There's no safety at all guaranteed to them, and if anyone goes out, they risk death. Due to this cruel persecution, protests are taking place all across India across against the atrocities committed against Christians there. Even in Rayagada, where I was when I visited mission sites in India in 2017, a church planter was seized recently by Hindus who had him arrested. When he was released, they threatened him, telling them that if he ever came back, they would kill him. Martyrdom is not a prospect for most of us, at least not now. Cross-bearing means for us self-sacrificial and compassionate service to others. As cross-bearing followers of Jesus, 
We have to, we're called to set aside our own agendas for self-advancement in favor of meeting the needs of those around us. If we want to see how such a life is fleshed out, we can turn to what Paul counsels the faithful in the various churches to which he addresses his epistles. In Romans 12, 9 through 21, we have a very interesting set of practices that we can say characterize a cross-centered life. Genuine love for others, goodness in the face of evil, patience in suffering, generosity shown even to enemies, and refusal of opportunities for revenge. You know, if these practices, these practices, if they're carried out, make disciples look very much like the one that they acknowledge as Lord, and that shouldn't surprise us. This passage tells us as much. Calvin tells us that, in fact, this is the very point of the cross that Jesus calls us to take up. It conforms us to his image. In this sense, our crosses serve as an instrument of our sanctification, as we had occasion earlier to study in our confessional lesson. Embedded in this picture of life that we see portrayed here in the gospel is a promise. Those who devote this life in service of self in pursuit of temporal gain have their own reward. But those who throw away their lives in compassionate and self-sacrificial service to others for Christ's sake have not only gained a meaningful life, they've also gained an expectation of an eternal reward by their works. In the language of the Belgian Confession, the gifts that God will crown by his grace. When Jesus tells Peter about the things that he must suffer, about the defeat that he will suffer at the hands of his enemies, Peter reacts predictably. But although the Son of Man will die, he will also come in glory. Indeed, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Peter, who's had this experience, he is one of them who will not taste death before he encounters the transfigured Christ. That's recounted in the next chapter. 2 Peter 1, 16, verse 18, tells us, tells us uh, uh, Peter says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received honor and glory from the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, you are my son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus points to this coming to impress on his disciples the urgency. We don't know when this will be. We're called today to take up our cross and Jesus has promised to come in his glory and to reward us according to our works. Amen. Well, we have some time to um, take up questions or hear from you about um, our confessional lesson or our gospel, uh, our text from the gospel this evening. As you were preaching, I I kept uh, thinking of the distinction Martin Luther made 
about a theology of the cross versus a theology of glory. Uh, and that's still a, something that believers battle with. They, they prefer a theology of glory on this side of glory rather than the theology of the cross, which is necessarily one of denying yourself. And, uh, this whole passage sort of speaks to that, you know, Luther's perspective and the battles he fought. Anyone else? Paul? I don't know. I, I mean, I the the commentaries that I read in on this passage um, referred to the the temptation in Matthew four, and the point they made is that Satan is trying to tempt Jesus to take the easy way, and um, that that seems to be what's going on here too, right? I mean, why why do that? That sounds suffering. And defeat at the hands of your enemies uh, that's not you that's not what we expect from you well, let's stand to hear our Lord's parting benediction now may the Lord bless you and keep you may the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace amen